Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin, a podcast where author, speaker, and worldwide renewal leader, Dr. Ralph Martin, shares what the Holy Spirit is stirring up in the church right now, words of encouragement from the Lord to strengthen you for such a time as this. We are glad you can be with us this week as we seek to encourage you for this moment in history. And now, your host, Ralph Martin. I really wasn't planning to keep talking about stuff that's happening in the church. I felt like I've said enough about it, but stuff continues to happen and and very troubling stuff. I want to tell you why I'm troubled and why we need to be alert to what's happening. And at the same time, say that nothing's changed fundamentally because Jesus is still Lord. And God's still got a plan to bring good out of it, but there's some troubling stuff that continues to happen. So I'm going to do a couple videos, one this week and another one next week or the week after. This one is going to be on the new moto proprio. I know it sounds a little esoteric, but it's not. That Pope Francis uh, just uh, published, it means something he's decreeing by his own authority. And it's uh, changing the statutes and the mission of the Academy of Theology, the Pontifical Academy of Theology. And I'm going to go over, it's not a terribly long document, it's like three single-space pages. I'm not going to read every part of it, but I am going to go over different parts of it, maybe in a little bit more detail than I normally do, uh, and also tell you why I'm concerned. Because I think this is uh, pretty important. What he's doing in this document is calling for a paradigm shift in the practice of theology. Uh, We've had good Catholic theology for 2,000 years. We've had the amazing theological work of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And the Pope and his associates seem to be characterizing this as rigid doctrine and calling for a paradigm shift that talks about how everything should be contextualized and we should listen to everybody and take into account many different sources of input into our discernment for the signs of the times and what our message should be and how it should be applied today. So, um, there's a way in which everything that said in this document <clears throat> could be interpreted in a positive way, but quite honestly, coming in the whole string of things that's been happening, including the recently concluded first session of the Senate, I am concerned. But let's go through uh, different parts of the document. It begins by saying, promoting theology in the future cannot be limited to abstractly reproposing formulas and schemes of the past, called to prophetically interpret it the present and glimpse new itineraries for the future. In the light of Revelation, theology will have to confront profound cultural transformations, aware that what we are living through is not simply an era of change, but a change of epoch. Well, certainly there's a lot of things changing in our culture, a lot of things changing in the world, but you know, human beings are still fallen. Jesus is still the only Savior. Uh, the only way we have knowing what's really happening in human hearts and what's really going to be happening in the world is by paying attention to divine revelation. And my primary concern with this document and many other documents is that 
it seems to put so much emphasis on listening to what people are saying, even people who have no faith, even people who have darkened minds, even people who are in rebellion against God. Uh, and so little emphasis on everything needs to be brought captive to Christ. Everything needs to be submitted to divine revelation. I'm concerned. So it goes on to say, in section three, a synodal missionary and outgoing church can only be matched by an outgoing theology. As I wrote in my letter to the Grand Chancellor of the Catholic University of Argentina, I think that was Archbishop Fernandez at the time. I haven't bothered to check it out, but probably Archbishop Fernandez wrote the letter that the Pope sent to him. That seems to be happening. Addressing professors and students of theology, I said, do not settle for a desk theology. Let your place of reflection be the frontiers. Good theologians, like good pastors, also smell of the people on the street and by their reflection pour oil and wine on the wounds of men. You know, I'm all for all of us having the smell of the sheep. All of us need to be close to people. All of us need to understand what's happening in people's lives. But we also need to have the smell of Christ. We also need to have the aroma of Christ coming forth from us because we put on Jesus Christ and we have his mind and heart. So when we're with the sheep and we're, we're participating in the shell of the, the smell of the sheep, we also have something to bring to them that's actually not just our own opinion, not just what they're asking for, but what Christ is offering himself. Openness to the world, to man, and the concreteness of his existential situation with its problems, wounds, challenges, and potential cannot, however, be reduced to a tactical attitude. That means we're not just doing this to be more effective in preaching the gospel, extrinsically adapting now crystallized content to new solutions that we're not just going to bring things that have been settled from the past. Now, I've got a problem with this. What, what does he mean by crystallized solutions from the past? Hard-fought clarity about the truth about Jesus, like in the Council of Nicaea. Hard-fought clarity about really important dimensions of the Catholic Church, like in the Council of Trent. Hard-fought definitions of uh, moral theology, like we have in the encyclical Veritas of Splendor. What, what, what does he mean by crystallized formulations? The Catholic Church has important formulations that are settled for all time and can't change and can't develop to the point where they contradict themselves. So this is a little little bit like really imprecise speech in a lot of ways, and we don't really know what's really being spoken about, although there's been so much condemnation of abstract theologians and abstract theology and people are holding on to doctrine. Well, if we don't hold on to the revealed truth, we're betraying Christ, and we're no good for anybody else, and we're no good for the mission of the church. So, unfortunately, there's unclarity and there's ambiguity here, which honestly seems to be almost like a method. We must urge theology to an epistemological and a methodological rethinking, as indicated in my apostolic constitution. And it goes on to say in section 4, Theological reflection is therefore called to a turning point, to a paradigm shift, to a courageous cultural revolution. And he's quoting his encyclical uh, Laudato Si on the environment. 
Well, when I hear the word cultural revolution, I think of the incredibly destructive cultural revolution of communist China. And I, I know that's what that's, that's not what's meant, but cultural revolution, depending on how it's defined, depending on how it's guided, depending on how it's informed, depending on what is submitted to can become a recipe for chaos and disaster. A cultural revolution that commits it first and foremost to a fundamentally contextual theology capable of reading, interpreting the gospel and the conditions in which men and women daily live in different geographical, social, and cultural environments, and having as its archetype for the, inc- the incarnation of the eternal Logos, it's entering into the cultural worldview and religious tradition of a people. From here, theology cannot but develop into a culture of dialogue and encounter between different traditions and different knowledge between different Christian denominations and different religions, openly confronting everyone, believers and non-believers alike. Indeed, the need for dialogue is intrinsic to human beings and to the whole creation. So, um, yes, yes, we need to encounter all of these realities, but we need to encounter them with a clear knowledge of what we've been commissioned and commanded to say to all cultures, all mentalities, all religions of all time that there's only one name given by which human beings can be saved and call people to conversion, to repentance, to obedience to what's revealed to us. Now, this document doesn't deny that, but it doesn't really say that, and it seems to be pointing to this kind of mishmash, this porridge, this stew of taking into account everything that's going on and not being clear how you discern and what you bring out of it. It goes on to say that, we're calling for transdisciplinarity, that is, interdisciplinarity in a strong sense, as distinct, as distinct from multidisciplinarity, understood as interdisciplinary in a weak sense. The latter certainly promotes a better understanding of the object of study by considering it from multiple points of view, which nevertheless remain complementary and separate. Instead, transdisciplinarity should be thought of as the placement and fermentation of all knowledge within the space of light and life offered by the wisdom that emanates from God's revelation. Hence, the arduous task of theology is to be able to make use of new categories elaborated by other knowledges in order to penetrate and communicate the truths of faith and transmit the teaching of Jesus in today's languages with originality and critical newness. Now, what we're talking about here is uh, enculturation of the gospel. We're talking about understanding aspects of culture that need to be changed in the culture that we're evangelizing and aspects of the culture that need to be affirmed that are good aspects. But this requires remarkable discernment and remarkable certainty and clarity about the revealed, unchangeable truth of the gospel. And not just a, uh, not just a knowledge that includes that, oh yes, Jesus is the Lord but a knowledge that's really filled with what Jesus actually says and what the apostles actually teach. Otherwise, we can find ourselves invoking Jesus almost as a symbol of transcendence uh, rather than as the concrete Redeemer who specifically spells out for us what we must do to be saved and calls us all to repent and be converted. Okay, so a lot of this is almost a little, I don't know, the language is is... It's sometimes kind of 
obscure. It's it's a little misty, mushy, unclear. It goes on to say, dialogue with other knowledge entirely evidently presupposes dialogue within the ecclesial community and awareness of the essential synodal and communal dimension of doing theology. It goes on to say, ecclesial synodality therefore commits theologians to do theology in a synodal form, promoting among themselves the capacity to listen, dialogue, discern, and integrate the multiplicity and variety of instances and inputs. Uh, That was a quote from another document that the International Theological Commission came up with. Now, a major, major theme right now in the church is synodality. And it's never been quite defined uh, the Eastern Catholic bishops and the Orthodox bishops say, that's not our synodality. That's not what, what synodality means in the tradition of church. What you're doing here seems to be more like consulting all kinds of people and out of that expecting to get an understanding of what should be done. Uh, it's not even the, the sense of the faithful. The sense of the faithful is the sense of the faithful. But the synodality process is consulting everybody, including many people who are not faithful, many people who do not believe what the church teaches, many people who uh, are advocating for departing from the faith. So it's kind of a strange kind of listening. It's a strange kind of synodality, and it's certainly not how the church really understands uh, consulting the sense of the faithful, with many people being consulted aren't the faithful. And it goes on to say, by this route, theology can contribute to the current debate of rethinking thinking. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know. This, this, this document would get a very bad grade in any responsible theology or literature course. It, it, it's, the language is so mushy and misty that uh, it can almost mean anything. We also must be attentive to the voice of the people. Thus, it should be scientific theology, but also popular theology, mercifully addressed to the open wounds of humanity and creation and within the folds of human history to which it prophesies the hope of ultimate fulfillment. Very, very vague language. What's the hope of ultimate fulfillment? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can we participate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? By believing, repenting, being baptized, and obeying Jesus and persevering till the end. Where where is this ever going to be said? And it goes on to say, theological reflection is urged to develop with an inductive method which starts from the different contexts and concrete situations in which people are inserted, allowing itself to be seriously challenged by reality in order to become discernment of the signs of the times. And then it goes on to say it's necessary that the knowledge of people's common sense, which is in fact a theological place in which so many images of God dwell, people's common sense, often though not corresponding to the Christian face of God, only and always love, be privileged first of all. So this is this is the line in this document that makes me particularly concerned. When we're doing theology, this document proposes that we give a privileged place to the common sense of people, even though, admittedly, the common sense of people contains, quote, images of God often not corresponding to the Christian face of God. Does this make any sense to give a privileged place 
to people with darkened minds as a as a da- data for theology? I don't think it does. I, I think it's really dangerous. I think it's pointing in a direction to a relativized revelation and place alongside of it a lot of other things, ecumenical and to religious, experiential, various other things. Transdisciplinary dialogue with other scientific, philosophical, humanistic, and artistic knowledge with believers and non-believers, with men and women of different Christian denominations and different religions. This will be able to happen by creating an academic community of shared faith, a study that weaves a network of relationships with other formative educational and cultural institutions and is able to penetrate with originality and a spirit of imagination into the existential places of the elaboration of knowledge professions in Christian communities. It sure sounds like a recipe for relativization. It it sure sounds like a a, a recipe for confusion and compromise and uh, ambiguity. But of course, that seems to be uh, a consistent hallmark of almost everything going on today, including the synodal method. I'm just going to conclude by saying a few words about the synod. I wasn't planning to say anything about the synod. I just did a long-form interview with Matt Fratt. I was in uh, Pittsburgh recently, Steubenville, to do that, and he asked me to speak about the synod. I said, I'd rather not talk about the synod. So he said, how about if we talk about the fulfillment of all desire, your book on the spiritual life? I said, great. But after I said that, these documents began to come out. And there's another one on transgender people becoming godparents for people being baptized. I'm going to do a different video on. But uh, by the time I got to uh, Steubenville and into the studio with Matt Fred, I said, you know, I guess I do want to say a few things about the Senate because what's happening is sort of unfolding in some ways the uh, – the methodology of the synod and trying to insert it into every part of church life. And of course, that's the, that's the stated intention. We need to now become a synodal church. So the method of the synod is to invite all kinds of people and give them equal time to say whatever they want to say and somehow put all these things together and give dignity and respect to everything and not give any priority to uh, – to people who are really deeply knowledgeable about the faith uh, and who are faithful to uh, divine revelation. One of the disturbing things to me was that Father Timothy Radcliffe, who was a former head of the Dominican Order and a very well-known proponent of welcoming the LGBTQ agenda into the church, he's like the Father James Martin of England, uh, was asked to give a retreat to all the synod delegates before the synod began, sort of softening them up, so to speak. And then he was also asked to give frequent talks, including a concluding talk at the end of the synod, and along with a, a nun called Mother Angelina. So this is what Mother Angelina said. Today, in a culture of striving for supremacy, profit, and followers, or evasion, the patient sowing of the synod is in itself like a profoundly subversive and revolutionary act in the logic of the smallest of seeds sinking into the ground, she said. Thus, the synod seems to me to find itself called to dare a a synthesis as sowing to open up a path toward reform, new form, which life requires. Is what do you mean? Life requires 
a reform uh, or a new form. Oh, I, th I think I know what she means, but it, when you hear language like this, you say, could you please tell me what you mean by life requires? What, what do you really mean? And then Father Radcliffe, it concluded the synod by, synod by saying, humanity's first vocation in paradise was to be gardeners. He said, Adam tended creation, sharing and speaking God's creative words, naming the animals. In these 11 months between the two sessions of the synod, it's going to be another synod in October of 2024, will we speak fertile, hope-filled words or words that are destructive and cynical? Will our words nurture the crop or be poisonous? Shall we be gardeners of the future or trapped in old, sterile conflicts we each choose? Yes, we should treat everybody with respect and dignity. But you know what? We can't agree with everybody. You know, the conflicts for 2,000 years of Christianity, beginning with Jesus' conflict for those who opposes him and the Apostle Paul's conflict with those who taught error, continues in our day. And it's almost like we're being invited into a culture of non-judgmentalism, not just about people's motives, but about people's opinions. Some people have wrong opinions about what the truth of the faith is. And we need to be able to say that politely, respectfully, lovingly, having first listened to them indeed. But quite honestly, the agenda seems to be, let's kind of... Uh, tamp it all down, let's listen to everybody, let's dialogue with everybody, let's uh, discern the signs of the times in these new situations, let's have a cultural revolution, let's have a new paradigm for theology where we privilege the uh, common sense, you mean the common fallen sense of fallen humanity that admittedly the document says contains many false images of God? Oh, I hope not. You know, it's not over till it's over. And one of the reasons I didn't want to comment on the Senate when, when Matt asked me is that, quite honestly, it's not over till it's over. We don't know what's going to happen. And, 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 you know, there's another whole session coming up. And uh, I don't think we should jump to conclusions. It sure looks like things, those who are leading it wanted to move in a certain way. I did a video maybe a month or so ago saying it's now unmistakably clear where we're being led. And I think what I said in that video is really true. Check it out. Um, but the last analysis, it almost doesn't matter what happens in these synods because it doesn't have any authority. And so what, what happens with synods, including this one, is that they submit their findings to the Pope. And the Pope then writes a post-synodal apostolic exhortation normally. So it all comes down to what does Francis want to do about the synods? What does he want to do about all the reports that contain conflicting viewpoints and con con conflicting demands and conflicting insights? For example, you know, Father James Martin came back from the city saying, I'm very disappointed uh, that more wasn't done on, on welcoming homosexuals into the church. An African bishop came out of the synod saying, that's crazy. You know, homosexuality is witchcraft. Honestly, this is what one of the archbishops from Africa said. So, yes, there's a diversity of opinions within the synod. There's a diversity of opinions within the church. So we need some clarity about what the revealed truth of God is so we can regather people in the unity that Christ wants for us in the Catholic Church. Right now we have this unity, and it's sort of being – it's continuing by 
ambiguity and confusion and contradiction. But uh, more of that in, in the next video. So, Lord, have mercy. Lord, help us. Help everybody to keep their heads clear about what the revealed truth of God's Word is as it comes to a scripture tradition and the catechism of the Catholic Church. So far, so good. And to keep our hearts at peace. I'd just like to encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss one of these videos. I think they're going to be pretty important. Uh, just click on the subscribe button. Click on the little blue bell that sends you notifications when a new video comes out. And God bless you and thank you for listening. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, part of the Renewal Podcast Network. If you are enjoying this podcast, we invite you to help us spread the word by leaving us a rating or review, following or subscribing to this podcast, or sharing on social media. Until next time, this is Right Now with Ralph Martin.